with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Our, our title for the message this morning is Responding to Counterfeit Christianity. I just want to take this opportunity to just thank the leadership once again and to thank you for the privilege of, of bringing God's Word to you this morning. It really is a great privilege and it is a great responsibility as well and I really do appreciate every opportunity to share God's Word with you. Jude, we're back in verse 3 and 4 as we take our second bite of, of these two verses. Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Just to remind you of some of the conclusions that we came to the last time we were in the book, we said that that Jude was writing this letter motivated by a sense of urgency, a sense of desperation because he had heard that false teachers had made their way into this local church and they were busy... Uh, misleading these Christians that crept into this church undetected. And we said that there are three reasons, three main reasons, more could be mentioned, but three reasons that we need to contend for the faith. We said that the glory and the honor and the fame of the Lord is at stake as Christians misrepresent Him to the world. We said that the precious message of the gospel and of Christ as unique savior of mankind is, is being distorted. And so we should be worried about that. And so we should be contending for that message. And we said that we should be worried because really men's souls are at stake because of the false theology that is abroad. So that was the motivation. And this morning we want to speak not about the why of contending, but we want to speak about the who of contending. We want to talk about who we're we're contending against. And and so we want to speak this morning about counterfeit currency and poisonous mushroom field guides. I'll explain in a moment. We want to speak this morning about three main movements in modern evangelicalism that are leading people away from this faith once delivered to the saints. And, and if we're honest, these movements are so far removed from historical and biblical Christianity that they aren't Christian movements at all. They are counterfeit Christianity. And at a glance, they might look Christian, but they really aren't. That's where the counterfeit currency and poisonous mushroom field guide analogies will be helpful, because the sermon this morning will be firstly a field guide to poisonous mushrooms, in the same way that you would consult a field guide before you go out and pick mushrooms and eat them, to look for those identifying characteristics of poisonous mushrooms. This morning we want to look at what are those identifying characteristics of poisonous false doctrine in evangelicalism. 
And secondly, we wanna, this sermon is going to be an examination of counterfeit currency in the same way that you would compare a counterfeit banknote with a real banknote and to look for those differences the same way we want to compare these false religious movements within Christianity with genuine Christianity. And by looking at the differences, we'll be able to identify them as fake. But why should we subject ourselves to to reasoning through this? Why should we be informing ourselves about these movements? Because first of all, we don't want ourselves ingesting anything that is poisonous. And we don't want ourselves to be scammed into accepting a counterfeit in the place of the genuine. But secondly, we want to be able to warn others that that hill over there has poisonous mushrooms. Look out for them. These are the signs. And we want to warn them about the fake currency that has been circulating in the system. And so this morning we're not going to talk about the so-called Christian sects like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or the Roman Catholics. We've dealt with that in, in the months gone by, and the sermons are available. But I want us to focus this morning simply on evangelicalism. And now, that's a difficult term to, to really define today because it used to refer to a people who firstly took God's word seriously and saw it as authoritative, and secondly had a high view of the gospel, and specifically the doctrines that salvation is by grace through faith. Now, not all of the people that we'll be talking about today fit into those categories, and yet they would identify themselves as evangelicals. That's part of the issue. That's part of the difficulty in identifying them. So in the sense, we're talking about the really broad-spectrum evangelicalism, people who have some sort of connection to the Bible and some sort of um, maybe even an affection for Jesus Christ, but who really are not committed to either of these. So what are the three movements before us? I want to start off with probably the most well-known one to all of us, one that we've probably all been influenced by. We all know people who, uh, loved ones who who follow this theology. Um, It's very popular. And that is the prosperity gospel theology, also known as the word of faith movement. So in a nutshell, what the word of faith movement is, it, it, it is a movement that believes that we as God's children are entitled to all his blessings, all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. But they usually define those blessings in material terms, instead of in terms of the spiritual blessings of the life to come. And so God's blessings for us entails financial and physical well-being. And therefore, if we are sick or we are in financial need, the problem is probably a lack of faith, a lack of faith in God and a lack of faith in His promises. That is what they would conclude. God will heal and prosper His people. Um, But that health, wealth, and prosperity uh, is what all God's people are entitled to as a consequence of Jesus dying on the cross. So it emphasizes positive thinking and positive confession as a way of creating, that's an important word, creating the kind of life that you want. And this theology has humorously been referred to as the blab it and grab it theology, or the name it and claim it theology. 
Because it's all about speaking into existence those things that you want. And there's lots more that can really be said about um, all the various branches of their theology and their peculiar doctrines. But we really want to focus on how we identify this kind of theology. How do we identify this false teaching? And first of all, it might be helpful for us to, to just put a few names on the tables, a few names of of uh, very well-known teachers who, who represent this doctrine. And let me just say up front that it's not about slinging mud at these people. It's not about slandering them. But we really want to be consistent and we want to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, who in his writings would name the false teachers that were a threat to genuine Christians. He also instructed the Roman church in Romans 16 to mark certain men, those men who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine of Christ and to avoid them. And so that's simply what I want us to do this morning. Here's a, a short list. Uh, the list is really endless, but these are some of the more well-known prosperity preachers. Whenever you turn on TBN, you probably see one of these guys or girls up front. Um, there's Kenneth Copeland. There is Benny Hinn. There is Joyce Myers, the very well-known Joel Osteen, the guy with the smile and the smooth voice. Um, There's Todd Bentley and Paula White. Now, as I said, there are many more that we could mention. And uh, we, we really don't want to slander these people, but we do want to be on our guard. Because as we turn on Christian television, these people are out there and they are preaching a gospel that is not consistent with the Word of God. But with all these teachers, as you listen to them, you'll, you'll fairly quickly, if you know anything about their theology, you'll quickly come to see it for what it is. You'll quickly come to see some of the, um, the emphasis on, on riches and wealth. But there is a softer prosperity gospel um, that I believe we've all been influenced by, in a sense, and it's much more difficult to detect sometimes. But we, for some other reason, because of the comforts that we enjoy in Western countries and in our advanced civilization, we, we tend to believe that God owes us comfort and blessing. And if we're really a good child of God, that He would prosper us financially. And when we fall ill, we feel like we have the right to murmur against God because God is somehow not holding up to His end of the bargain. So there is the softer kind of prosperity gospel as well. And John Piper gives six um, points for us, helpful points to help us identify um, prosperity teaching. And he's speaking specifically about identifying a preacher as um, a proponent of prosperity gospel. But these points are really helpful in really determining whether someone that we're speaking to is holding to some form, of, some form of prosperity gospel. So here are the six signs. The first one is there's no robust doctrine of suffering. So there's no real way for them to deal with calamity, with illness, with um, the loss of a job or a loss of a loved one um, because they really believe that Jer- Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is all there is, that God plans to prosper us and not to harm us and to give us a hope and a future. And so 
the reality of suffering in the world clashes with that theology and they're left confused. They're left with, without an answer to the suffering that they face. I recently spoke to someone who's a very strong proponent of the prosperity gospel and he, in the space of I think a year and a half, lost his cousin and his sister that he was very close to, to um, I think it was both of them was a heart attack. And in speaking to him, I quickly realized that he was unable to deal with the losses that he had suffered. Um, he'd stopped going to church and he, he was unable to deal with it. And now we all need to grieve in our own way, but I could sense that it just doesn't make sense to him because what he's been taught just doesn't um, relate or prepare him for the suffering that he's going through. Thirdly, there's no serious exposition of the Scripture. So, there, so there's no wrestling with a certain text of Scripture and taking what's in the Scripture and presenting it to the people of God. But normally there's some sort of preaching on a theme or a series or some sort of gimmick. The preacher is really just using the Bible to prop up whatever it is that he's trying to teach. Fourthly, there's no wrestling with some of the tensions in Scripture. So because they pick and choose what they want to preach, they never get to a point where they need to struggle with tensions in the Bible that come into tension with, with um, their theology. When, when you read something like, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God, they don't wrestle with those tensions. They just ignore them. Fifthly, there is... Um, their exorbitant lifestyles. Now, the, the guy who's preaching prosperity is not necessarily rich, but you can, you can get a sense of worldliness, a sense of loving the things of the world and possessions and wanting to live in that neighborhood and drive that car. Um, there's a focus on materialism, which really brings us to the last point, which is an overemphasis on himself. There will be very little God-centered preaching from the pulpit. And at the end of the day, all his preaching is really about himself and glorifying himself instead of glorifying God. Now, these are some helpful points to help us identify prosperity gospel theology. But I trust that you appreciate the fact with me that this really is a serious error because it tends to replace the genuine saving gospel message with this counterfeit Christianity, this counterfeit message that offers nothing but material gain. I remember going to a men's conference, a very well-known men's conference in South Africa a few years ago, and on the Friday evening there was an altar call um, asking people who want to commit their lives to Christ to come forward, and and over 2,000 men went forward. But the problem is that the gospel was, was never preached. This, the person who was preaching, he used to be, I don't know if he still is, but he, he used to be the head of TBN Africa. And he preached this message, and it, basically what he said was this, that if you as a husband have been negligent in loving your wife and being a good father, if you've been guilty of substance abuse or if you're in financial constraints, just come to Jesus, just give everything over to him, and he'll fix all of that for you. And that was the message that they responded to. And I remember standing there and just praying, Lord, I pray that at least some of these men would, would actually start going to church and, and really hear the gospel preached. 
and really be converted because no one will be converted by that kind of preaching where there's no gospel, no warning about sin, no warning about God's justice and our need to be saved and justified. But the second movement we want to look at this morning is called moral therapeutic deism. And Christo has been speaking about this for a while, but the best way to summarize moral therapeutic deism is by really looking at those three words that make up the name. It is moral in the sense that it is about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It's all about being a good person. It is therapeutic in the sense that it provides therapeutic benefits to its adherence. Therefore, this brand of Christianity is all about felt needs and not really about dealing with issues of sin and our objective guilt before God and how we need to deal with that. And thirdly is this word deism. It refers to the fact that for them, God is selectively available to them. In other words, for the most, God, most part, God is either unimportant or unnecessary to their lives until a crisis comes along or circumstances lead them to seek out divine intervention. And we really need to say that it's not so much a, a theological system. It's not as though a church suddenly decides that we're going to start adhering to moral therapeutic deism. It is more a sociological designation, and this is what I mean by that. In 2005, a study was conducted by two sociologists among young Christians to determine what they believed were essential to their Christian identity and faith. And the findings suggest that many young Christians have beliefs about God that are so vague or so inconsistent with traditional Christianity that they cannot accurately be called Christians. This new religious worldview was termed moral therapeutic deism, or MTD, as I will refer to it from now on. It was found that those who identified in this category basically had the following beliefs in common, these five points. So as they, as they polled these young Christians, about 3,000 of them, they realized that these were the five main tenets of their belief. And they realized that some of these we're perfectly happy with. They, we, we agree with this. But a lot of the problem comes in with not with what is being said, but what is not being said. Firstly, there is a belief that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. And so up to that point, we'd agree. But thirdly, they say that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourthly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then lastly, the assertion that good people go to heaven when they die. And this is really relevant to our discussion this morning because we are talking about contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. And we're talking about a large group of people who identify as Christians and yet have become totally untethered to this faith that was once delivered to the saint. It is, a, it is a vague, it is a contentless Christianity that is more cultural than it is biblical. Listen to the following statement that I took from their thesis on these two sociologists 
what they wrote about MTD. They said, and quote, other more accomplished scholars in these areas will have to examine and evaluate whether these, possi- these possibilities in greater depth. But we can say here that we have come with some confidence to believe that a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but is rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten, misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism, end quote. Now, these are secular sociologists who have compared the beliefs of these Christians with traditional Christianity and have come away concluding that these are two totally different belief systems. And it was interesting that they speak in terms of MTD being in the process of colonizing Christianity, of taking over Christianity. This certainly should make us sit up and take notice. While the prosperity gospel really spreads with bad theology from the pulpit, MTD spreads when sound theology is considered unnecessary or unimportant and neglected from the pulpit and by Christians. And we can really summarize the problem because this is really symptomatic of a deeper problem, which I would would define as the lack of two things. The lack of clarity from the pulpit, the lack of any kind of theological robustness, um, clarity, perspicuity, any, any kind of real wrestling with the theology of the Bible and, and explaining it and emphasizing it as crucial to the Christian faith. But secondly, there is the problem of consistency, a lack of consistency in the lives of believers that causes people around us, our loved ones, to look at our lives and to say, hmm, what they say they believe obviously is not that important to them um, if they are so easily um, willing to do away with them and to live lives that really look the same as um, people who do not claim to be Christians. Listen to Al Mola commenting on this. This is a, a rather lengthy clo- uh, quote, so just hang in there with me. He says, and I quote, All this means, this study, these findings... All this means is that teenagers have been listening carefully. There's a shocker. They have been observing their parents in the larger culture with diligence and insight. They understand just how little their parents really believe and just how much many of these churches and Christian institutions have accommodated themselves to the dominant culture. They sense the degree to which theological conviction has been sacrificed on the altar of individualism and a relativistic understanding of truth. They have learned from their elders that self-improvement is the one great moral imperative to which all are accountable. And they have observed the fact that the highest aspiration of those who shape this culture is to be found in happiness, security, and meaning in life. End quote. This is really a, a scathing indictment on, on us as a church and on us as individual Christians, because here we can't point the finger to a Joel Osteen or a Joyce Meyer and their their bad theology, but really we are the ones to blame because we're not serious enough about our convictions. We're not serious about the, the, the importance of emphasizing theological truth and sound doctrine. 
and because our lives are not, in, are not consistent with the Word of God. We need to show our children and our loved ones something better, something more than just cultural, nominal, contentless Christianity. But we'll get to that something better in a moment. In short, we can say that MTD is really a vague form of Christianity, unattached to biblical and historical Christianity, a a system with a God that is really nothing more than a cosmic father figure who wants us to be good and with whom we can share our problems. The important issues such as who God is, how our sin is dealt with, why Christ died on the cross, the realities of heaven and hell and how we are to live in this life in a way that glorifies God, all of this is either neglected or misunderstood. So that is moral therapeutic deism. But lastly, we want to speak about theological liberalism, also known as progressive Christianity. I mean, that name says it all, that they want to progress beyond the Bible. They want to progress beyond this old-fashioned faith that was once delivered to the saints. First of all, it might be important just to say up front that this is not about um, politics, but about theology. It's not about political um, conservatism and, and liberalism, but about theological liberalism. And the contrast between these terms, conservative and liberal, are often unhelpful. I, I really appreciate two words that have been used historically by Afrikaans theologians when dealing with this issue. The first word is the word rechsinnig, rechsinnig. And the second one is the word vreisinnig. And what is meant by rechsinnig is simply right thinking. In, in English, we, we normally use the word orthodoxy, but that has all sorts of historical and emotional implications. And so I prefer the word right, or the term right thinking, rechsinnig, in contrast to those who are vreisinnig, who are free-thinking. Now, we need to clarify that as well because free-thinking is a good thing. We want our kids to be free-thinkers, to be creative, to be able to think outside of the box. But that is not what what we mean by free-thinking when it comes to liberalism. Because while rechtsinnig, while right-thinking, is about submitting ourselves to the authority of God's Word, free-thinking is believing that we can come to our own conclusions about, about God and about life apart from God's Word, and often in contrast to God's Word. And so this really raises the issue of authority, which is the real issue when dealing with the issue of liberalism. Because liberals raise the human reason as the authority over the Word of God, and they feel like they can change the Word of God um, because they know better. They know better than God. Liberals feel that Christianity has something to to offer to to the world, but not if they continue to cling to what they feel is old-fashioned and outdated and traditional Christianity. They rightly want Christianity to to be relevant to a world that is vastly different from the one that the Bible was originally written in. But they assume that in order to be relevant... We need to compromise the message of our faith to adapt to the culture so that the culture will feel like they can embrace the faith. 
They would argue that the faith once delivered to the saints needs to be adapted. It needs to be made more palatable, more acceptable to a world that has moved on from Christian values and morals. Just an example that might illustrate theological liberalism. Um, They've been in the news a lot lately um, in conservative Christian news. Um, A seminary in the United States known as uh, Union Seminary. That used to be the seminary where the Presbyterians sent their ministers to be trained, and they used to be very conservative. But they have, in years gone by, slipped into liberalism, and their current uh, president, Serene Jones, recently, or not recently, two or three years ago, had an interview with a skeptic where he asked her about um, some of the essentials of the Christian faith, and she had no problem denying that she believes in them. She denied that Christ was born by a virgin birth, um, and she denied the historicity of the resurrection. And not only did she deny them, but she said at the end of the day, they're not really all that important. Because all that the Bible is really good for is as an aid to social change in the world. And a few months ago, um, in the news, they reported that Union Seminary had a special service in which they made confession and prayed to pot plants. Um, You can imagine us, after this sermon, turning to this um, lavender and confessing our sins to it. That really is um, just so common in liberal circles. It is just madness, um, and they don't realize it. Liberals are really concerned about social transformation and are keen to use the Bible to enter in the dialogue on issues such as gender roles, same-sex marriage, the environment, and immigration policies, and so on. But interestingly, interestingly, they do not enter the dialogue on the side of Bible-believing evangelicals. Instead, they they turn their guns on their so-called brothers in Christ, and they champion their social justice concerns, while at the same time mocking and ridiculing Christians who actually take God's word seriously. Once again, it's not about conservatism and liberalism, but about right thinking, about submitting to Scripture versus free thinking, believing that we have freedom to alter Scripture to suit our views. Phil Johnson helpfully gives four points that we need to look out for in identifying neoliberalism. These are four trends in evangelicalism today, very active, very noticeable. And he says, look out for these four signs. Liberal churches recklessly follow the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Whatever is relevant, whatever is popular, liberal churches want to be a part of it. Secondly, they want the world's admiration at all costs. They don't mind compromising on essentials of the faith or essentials of the gospel or compromising their own morality as long as the world admires them and does not ridicule them as bigots. Thirdly, their faith comes with an air of intellectual superiority. So they, in engaging with them about the Bible, they, they, will, they will mock the Bible and they'll, they'll mock the culture within, it, with, within which it was written and the people that wrote the Bible and they'll mock conservative beliefs and they'll mock the idea that somehow a virgin could conceive and bear a child. So there is this intellectual superiority, a looking down at... Um, conservative evangelicals. And fourthly, 
they despise doctrinal and biblical precision. Interestingly enough, even though they have this air of intellectual superiority, if you engage on them with them on issues like um, the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, His person and His work, or the nature of the Trinity, or you engage with them on, on where the Bible confronts social issues, they really don't want to get into any of those conversations. They, they really just want to talk about social change. They're not interested in, in any kind of doctrine. So with all their claims to sincerity and desire for Christianity to be relevant and to reach our culture by adopting their values and ethics, liberalism is really none other than good old-fashioned unbelief. That's all it is. You can dress it up however you want. You can call it what you want. They can have very impressive degrees in divinity and theology to represent them, but this is nothing but unbelief. And it's nothing new. It's as old as time itself. Ever since the time of the fall, when Eve was tempted by those deceptive words of the devil, has God really said? Casting doubt on God's word, causing Eve to doubt in both God's word and in his goodness. That is all that liberalism is. It's unbelief. It is grounded in unbelief and it is grounded in the deadly deception of believing that man is autonomous, that he can determine right from wrong, apart from his creator. So these are the three movements before us. These are the three main movements that endanger the church, that endanger modern evangelicalism, and that excuse any sort of historic Christian faith and doctrine. But what we need to ask in conclusion is, what do these faiths, what do these movements have in common? I would say, firstly, some sort of appreciation or affection or connection to God. They believe that God exists, and they would say that. But secondly, it is this theology of selfism. That Christianity, my faith, the Bible, God, is really all about me. It is the theology where man, and not God, is central. It's all about me. It's all about my wants and my needs. I want to prosper. I want to be healthy. I don't want to get into theological debates. I just want to know that God is there and that I can talk to Him when I'm in need. And it is a rejection of God's standards of morality. But what is the answer? We've concluded that we, we, need, to mot- we need to contend for the faith. We, we know that that is, that is imperative. It is in our text. We must contend for the faith. But how do we do that? How, would you, how do we contend to this counterfeit Christianity? Hopefully all of us here today would agree that we need to confront error with the truth. We need to confront error with the Scriptures, the Word of God that He has given to us to reveal Himself, to reveal His saving purpose for mankind, to reveal how we are to live. We need to confront error with, with this Word of God, an inerrant, infallible Word of God that is true, that we can sit alongside these counterfeit Christians and Christian systems and show what the differences are, show where they deviate and stand upon the Word of God. But there is a great danger in this. Because in our contending for the faith, we can take up the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the weapon that we've been given 
to contend with. We can take up the right weapon, and yet we can use it in the wrong way. And so we can use the Bible to win an argument with, for argument's sake, a liberal. We can use the Bible to, to beat them into submission and to get them to a point to admit, okay, I was wrong, or to get them to a point where they say, that's your truth, I have my truth, whatever it might be. You can show them from the Word of God that they're wrong, and you can walk away feeling as though you're victorious and actually have lost the battle. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities, and um, it is against demonic forces, it is against the devil. Um, It is a spiritual battle. It is a battle for men's souls. And so the, the... what I want to leave you with this morning is not to go into the battle thinking that you can just confront these moral issues with the Bible, to, to kind of just use Bible verses to win the argument and somehow confront some of the surface issues um, that these people hold to because they, their problem really is not that they are liberal. Their problem really is not that they hold to a prosperity gospel. The problem is that they, if they hold to any one of these systems, they're probably lost, and they don't know Christ. And so we need to deal with their real problem, which is the seriousness of their spiritual state before God, the seriousness of their sin. And so somehow we need to introduce the gospel into the conversation. We can't just walk away without including the only message that can give them any real kind of hope. Because what happens as the gospel is proclaimed? And we hear about the seriousness of sin, and we hear about the heinousness of our sin against a holy God, and we we begin to, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, begin to see ourselves as we really are in God's eyes as failures and as rebels and as creatures that have rebelled against their Creator. And we begin to get some sense of our lostness and the appropriateness of God's justice because we begin to hear about a God who is perfectly holy, whose moral impeccability means that He must deal with sin, that He must punish our transgressions, that He cannot simply sweep our sin under the rug, but that it must be dealt with. And so we hear these things, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are convicted, and we are confronted, and we realize who we really are, and we realize that God is absolutely just in condemning us. But then we hear about a man. Not just any man, but the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we hear about Him coming to earth, and this is His purpose. He comes to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh. He becomes like one of us, and He goes to the cross willingly. He says that He lays down His life for the sheep. No one takes it away from Him. He has the power to lay it down, and He has the power to take it up again. And so he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross. And Scripture says that, that God's wrath over our sin 
is poured out upon his son. And so as we sit under that preaching, as we sit under the preaching of the gospel, and we hear about Christ, and we hear about all that he's done, we've heard about how the father was willing to sacrifice his son for the sake of his people, how he was willing to deal with our sins, not as we deserve, but by placing them on Christ and punishing him in our place. And we begin to hear these great and glorious truths. And so we bow our knee to God and we cry out for mercy. And we say, oh God, have mercy on me, a wretched sinner. I have nothing that I can do that can win your favor. There is no goodness at all in me. I am like a sheep that has gone astray. But yet for the sake of Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, have mercy on my soul. And as we're converted and as the Holy Spirit dawns, brings, begins to dawn on us the reality of what has just happened, the fact that God has taken a hell-bound sinner and translated him into His kingdom of light and that God has had mercy on us, as that begins to dawn on us, begin to grasp something of God's mercy, something of God's greatness in being willing to sacrifice His Son for us, not sparing, sparing Him, but giving Him up for our sake, seeing something of the preciousness of the gospel, there is no way that we can return to a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that has nothing to offer but materialism. We sang it earlier. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, but thou mine inheritance, now and always. There is no way that we would settle for a lesser gospel. And there is no way that we'd be content with a moralistic, therapeutic deism, because these truths, these essential truths of the Christian faith, are no longer just doctrines. They're no longer just intellectual but they are real to us. And they are everything to us. They are our hope. I heard recently that you might not know Gresham Machen, but he was a very well-known um, advocate for conservative theology against liberalism. And as he lay dying, his words were, I praise God for the active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ not clinging to some contentless Christianity and not seeing these doctrines as simply something for us to debate about, but seeing them as the very solidness of the ground underneath our feet. And we won't settle for, for liberalism that says that our Lord did not come as He said He did by virgin birth or that denies the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, if Christ be not raised from the dead, you are yet dead in your sins, and you are most miserable of all men. So these truths are essential. And as we marvel at the gospel, and as we marvel at the greatness of our God, and as we take our delight in Him, it is impossible for us to turn to these lesser, man-made, futile religious systems. And so this is what we need to offer. 
This is what we need to offer, even in our contending against people, even in contending against these theologies. Let us use every opportunity to share the gospel. As Rosaria Butterfield said in an interview recently, she's an ex-lesbian professor who's come to Christ. She said we need to stop making moral declarations instead of giving gospel invitations. The gospel is central. The gospel is the issue. We've gone a bit over our time already and we want to get to the table. Let me simply leave you with this as we go to the table this morning. Do not let the communion table this morning be just another ritual that you go through. Do not let it be simply empty symbols to you. But truly remember, truly reflect on all that Christ has done for you. The preciousness of the gospel, the preciousness of this faith that we are contending for. The genuine is so much better than the counterfeit. Let us reflect on that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we talk about issues like these that are complex, that have an academic side to them that are difficult to deal with um, and that we don't always feel like talking about at a Sunday morning service, we want to ask, O Lord, that you would help us to be able to discern truth from error. But, O Lord, even more importantly, that you would help us to, to see something, to be reminded of the preciousness of the good news, this joyous, this joyful exchange, his robe, robes for ours, that you took upon you our sin and that we received your perfect righteousness. Let this be our joy. Let this be that which our Christianity is all about, not just about being conservative, but being truly evangelical in the real sense of the word. Please help us, O oh Lord. Please help us in the way that we dialogue with people with views that are different to ours. Help us to be concerned about the truth, but let us also be concerned about their souls. Remind us now as we go to your table about the greatness of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.